Well, we have been doing a thing called summer school here, and so we've been having different people teach, different topics. It's been nice. I actually got five weeks off of teaching, and so it's funny, in five weeks, standing back up here again, I like feel nervous. I got over being nervous talking, and I kind of feel a little nervous. Um, But we've been doing this thing, summer school, and last week, Josh Baker preached um, on a topic that was very personal to him, and he preached on anxiety. And in the message, he shared his own battle with anxiety, and he went through Psalm 13 and kind of really just dove down into the heart of anxiety. If you weren't here, it was, it was really a good thing to, um, to hear and to wrestle through. And, and this week, I realized that I struggle with anxiety a lot more than I thought I do, and I had other people kind of say the same thing, and so it was, it was good. But in his message, he said that anxiety is one of the silent plagues of the church, and uh, I get the privilege when other people are teaching oftentimes to sit and talk to him about what the sermon's going to look like and kind of we'll talk through it. And so Josh and I did that for weeks leading up to him kind of delivering the message last week. And, and when he first told me that he believes that anxiety is one of the silent plagues of the church, I started really thinking about that. And so I, start, I, can't, I couldn't agree anymore that anxiety is a silent plague of the church. And I began to think through, are there other things that are kind of silent plagues in the church? Are there things that that um, prevent people from coming to church? Are there things that prevent people from coming to faith? Um, but then I went deeper and I said, okay, what are the things that, that keep people from living in deep community with one another? What are the things that prevent people from really walking with Jesus? What are things that prevent us from running the race with perseverance? What are the things that cripple believers and cause us to be unproductive in the kingdom? And the more I spent, uh, the more time I spent thinking through that, I totally was with Josh that I think anxiety is one of those things that prevents us as followers from living the life that God has for us. And I think another one of them is shame. That's what we're going to talk about today is shame. We're going to talk about three things. One, what is shame? I think shame is one of those things that we know, but we don't really know. Until it's hard to define exactly what it is, and so we're going to talk about what is shame. We're also going to talk about where did it originate, and then we're going to talk about, well, what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? Um, before we do, let's pray. God, I think um, if we're honest in a room this size, there are those of us who battle deep, deep lies. I think that if we're honest, there's people in here who have had horrible, horrible things happen in their life that causes great shame. But God, I also think that there's people in this room like I was last week that almost think that I don't struggle with anxiety and then realize just how deep maybe I do. I pray that today would be a day that we understand um, more about the ways that we struggle so that we can understand more about how good of a God you are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So shame, what is shame? Um, I, I found this uh, kind of quote, and I think it's great. There was a clinical psychologist by the name of Gershon, Gershwin Kaufman. He has written several books on shame. He um, has his PhD, and he's got years and years of experience of walking people through these deep things that are going on in their lives. And he, this is what he says. He says, shame is the most disturbing experience individuals ever have about themselves. No other emotion feels more deeply disturbing because at the moment of shame, 
the self feels wounded from within. What shame really is, is this deep wound that's inside of us. And it's different than guilt. Like, I think we always kind of talk about shame and guilt together. And guilt is typically feeling bad for something that you have done. Like, I'm going to make up a story. Let's say I decided this actually did not happen, although with some of you might think that it actually did. But let's say I decided um, I'm 15, I can't drive yet, but I'm going to just go ahead and steal my parents' car, go for a little joyride. While I do that, I accidentally clip a mailbox, and now I'm, I feel really bad about what I had done. But shame is different than that. Guilt is I, am, I feel bad for something that I did, but shame feels bad about who you are. Shame is this feeling of being broken as a person or feeling disgusted with yourself. If you're like me, there's probably things that have happened in your life that you're not proud of. There's probably things in your life that have happened that make you feel just wrong inside. Shame is almost always accompanied with embarrassment it's almost always accompanied with a desire to hide it. The thing is, is something happened in your life that you're not proud of, and you don't want other people to know. So shame is almost always uh, surrounded by this desire to hide, this desire to keep things secret, things you don't want people to know. But, it, but it's this kind of feeling going on inside of you that you're dirty or you're gross, you're a failure, you're trashy feeling of helplessness or imprisonment. And what I think happens is when, when, when something like that happens in your life that you feel bad about who you are, so, so when that happens, at that very moment, I think what happens is failure and pride intersect. And you feel this deep failure, but then your pride tells you, I don't want other people to know it. And I think that shame is right at that moment where failure and pride intersect. So you can see shame manifest itself in many different ways. You can almost see people living like a turtle, right? Anytime something a little bit dangerous, anything a little bit crazy out there, like they almost become like a turtle and kind of suck back into their shell, their own protection. I think that you can even see depression oftentimes kind of points back to shame. I think that there's times that anxiety kind of really, the root of it is actually shame, People who have self-image issues, oftentimes it's shame at the root of it. People who really struggle with worrying about what other people think, oftentimes what's behind that is shame. Struggle with comparing yourself to everyone else, oftentimes what's behind that is shame. I think oftentimes even anger, like lashing out on other people, can come out of shame. Defensiveness. You don't want to listen to what other people have to say because they might say something that you already kind of feel to be true deep inside and then it kind of feels like you got knocked down again and so you got to be defensive, right? I think sometimes mistreating of other people. I, I would say growing up, I was a jerk to a lot of people. I was one of those kids that was guaranteed to get sent to the principal's office at least once a year. Tristan just rolled her eyes at me. But I think oftentimes some of the things that I did was actually out of a root of shame. And then what's crazy is when I would do some of those things, it would actually create even more shame. 
But oftentimes, um, mistreatment of others comes out of shame. A broken spirit can come out of shame. Self-hate, self-harm, and even suicide. And its root is oftentimes shame. And like I said, the odd thing about shame is it can build over time. You know, I, I, you, the older you get, you kind of feel like, well, I'm, the older I get, I'm not going to wrestle with some of these things anymore. But I don't think that that's really true. You might get used to dealing with them. But I think at any age, we can struggle with shame. We can struggle with anxiety at any age. We can probably even struggle with more anxiety. It builds over time. And like I said, oftentimes, you can even experience shame over the fact that you're experiencing shame. You can be shameful of the fact that you don't trust God enough that you're feeling the shame. Like It's this cycle that can happen. It can drive people deeper and deeper, and it can be like an avalanche where it's just all piling up on you. So shame are these deep wounds that we can feel about ourselves. this feeling bad about who we are. It can be accompanied by a desire to hide from other people. It can manifest itself in many different ways, and it can build over time. That's really what I would say shame is. And so I want to ask you for just about five seconds to really deeply think about shame. And are there things inside that cause shame in you? I can say that this week as I tried to explore through this, again, I think the subject was like, oh, I don't really struggle with that. But then the more time that I spent really thinking about this, the more I realized I struggle with this more than I think that I do. So if that's what shame is, where did shame originate? If you've been around, you know, we did, did the whole story of the Bible, and it goes all the way back to the very beginning. At the very beginning, God created everything. It was beautiful. He created man and woman. It was very good. Everything else was good, and then man and woman, it was very good. And they walked with God in the garden, and it was beautiful, and it was awesome, and, and they just had this great relationship with each other and this great relationship with God. And that's Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, there's a serpent that comes, and the serpent is crafty, and he convinces the woman you should do what God said not to. And God had only said one thing. He'd give him, you can do anything, just one thing. You don't eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. And they decide, reluctantly, listening to the serpent, well, maybe not reluctantly, they decide to do it because listening to the serpent, they, can, they convince themselves to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they do that. And when they do that, from Genesis chapter 2, 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The very next chapter... Chapter 3, verse 7, Then their eyes were opened, and both of them knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. In an instant, they knew shame. They felt like their bodies were not right, that something was wrong with them. They felt this desire to hide from one another. They felt that brokenness with something of who they are. That's where it originated. All the way back, Genesis chapter 3. And, and there's a ripple effect from there that now all of us get the awesome privilege of wrestling with shame. And I think all of us wrestle with it with this varying degrees. You can have those lingering thoughts. You just have one of those days you look in the mirror and you're like, man, I am ugly. Anybody have one of those days? I feel like the older I get, the, the more i thinking that, like, what is happening? Maybe it's kind of those lingering feelings of I'm fat and ugly and nobody likes me type of days. Or it can be those days 
where you almost look in the mirror and hate yourself. It originated at the fall, and, but at the same time, I think it's, it's, it's easy to gloss over that, that there's still this thing that is going on. And what this thing is that's going on is to this day, it is one of the enemy's favorite tools. I think that shame is one of his most used tools, and I actually think it is one of his most effective tools. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And I think shame is one of those things that he tries to put on us to do just that. John 10.10, 10, he's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Again, I think that shame is one of the things he does to do that. You, you go on and um, throughout Scripture it says that the enemy is a tempter, that he's cunning, that he's a deceiver, he's a schemer. He wants to lead people astray. And so what I think that happens is, although we all have these kind of wounds inside of us that goes all the way back to the fall, what happens is that the enemy, even now, is wanting to continue to use those things. I think the enemy, in the shame in the hands of the enemy, is he's wanting to prevent you from being in deep, deep community. He's wanting to prevent you from being willing to share some of these things that are going on in your life because you, no one would understand. No one will. And so the enemy uses this to keep you out of community. I think the enemy uses it to keep you from running the race. He uses it to cripple believers to cause them to be unproductive in the kingdom. The word devil in Greek comes from a word diablos. That word translated is the false accuser or the slanderer. And I think what the enemy wants to do is take that shame that we can struggle with all the way because of back here and continue to try to use that to seek to make us unproductive for the kingdom. Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. And then this, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That's what's going to happen one day. But in the meantime, who accuses them night and day before our God? There is an enemy who's constantly shooting accusations at us, who's speaking these, these partial truths into our life who's speaking all-out lies into us. And he's coming to steal, kill, and destroy. And he, I believe shame is one of the big things that he uses in his hands. It's almost like there's this ringing in our ears. Something is wrong with us. I think shame says you are flawed. You are defective. You are damaged goods. Something is wrong with you. You are gross. You're pathetic. You are worthless. You are of no value. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You should just give up. There's no hope for you. You're dirty. You are trouble. People really actually don't like you. They just tolerate you. If people really knew who you were, they wouldn't like you. They definitely wouldn't love you. Why would anyone love you? Why would God love you? It's too late for you. You're too messed up. It's a matter of time until you fail again. It's just a matter of time until the people who you care about will leave you. But I think what shame really does, 
All of those things. But then you know what it does? It makes you turn your focus upon God and say, if all of, I feel all of this, and this sucks to feel this way. And because I feel this way, that must mean that God is not good. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. It's the wounds that you carry. It originated at the fall. It's perpetually being continued by false accusations from the enemy. It, I think it truly affects all of us to some degree. It may manifest itself in different ways. So what are we to do? Well, I'll tell you first what I think that we oftentimes do. I think that what we try to do is cover up those thoughts of shame. We can try to overcompensate, try to work to prove ourselves. And we kind of have this thing, if, I, if I'm good enough at my job or at sports or if I get the right fin, friend group, then maybe I won't feel these thoughts. I'll just, I'll just kind of cover these thoughts up. We pour ourselves into hobbies or ministry even or trying to search for significance, this desire to get the next trophy. And we can pour ourselves into all these different things. And when we do that, I think what we're trying to do is simply cover up the shame that we're feeling. I think what we try to do is we try to hide from other people. It's a way to cover it up. I came across this in um, Desiring God. There's a devotional called Breaking the Power of Shame. And in it, this is what it says. Based in the midst of us feeling shame, we try to hide. And what it says is we hide in our homes or away from our homes. We hide in our rooms and in our offices. We hide in Housework, yard work, garage puttering. We hide behind computers, behind our phones, behind newspapers, behind magazines. We hide behind earphones, Netflix, and ESPN. We hide behind fashion facades, education facades, career facades, Facebook facades, and even pulpit facades. We hide in our busyness and our procrastination. We hide in outright lies or diversionary conversation. How's the weather? Pride moves us to use whatever we can to hide our shame. I think one of the things that we try to do is to cover up our shame. We hide it from others. We hide it from God. We try to keep ourselves busy enough to distract ourselves. I don't think that works. So I think that then sometimes what we do is we turn to trying to mask it. If we can't cover the thoughts of shame, let's mask the thoughts of shame, which drives people into alcohol, drugs, certain relationships. It can drive people into materialism. If I get the next new thing, then I won't worry about all these things that I feel deep inside. For some, it even um, can move into cutting. If you're unfamiliar with what that is, there's a lot of people who really struggle with feeling these deep, dark things about themselves, and they get something sharp, and they truly cut themselves. It's a huge struggle for younger people. Huge. You'd be shocked if you know. And if you talk with people who know, it's, it's, it's amazing. But there's this thing of seeking to escape from these dark thoughts and feelings about who we are as a person. We try to cover the thoughts. We try to mask the thoughts. And when we do that, you know what happens? We feel more of those same shameful thoughts. So some people get to a point to where they just throw in the towel. You can find major addiction 
And oftentimes at the heart of major addiction is someone who has given up. You can find people who struggle with such a deep, dark depression that they are hermits. I read this article about, it like tracked through three different people who are willing to go through this like process for this article to be written who hadn't left their house in like 15 years. Talk about just giving up. Suicide. You give up. Walls have crashed in on you. It's over. So I think that what we try to do in the midst of shame is cover it up. We try to mask it. We try to, we we throw in the towel maybe. And none of those work. Each of those things I think continue to keep us away from God, keep us from walking with him, keep us from being productive in the kingdom. And really, it gives us over to live a life beneath the story that God has for us. So if none of those work, what are we to do? Took a very, very long time to get here. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 1 through 10. What are we to do in the midst of shame? This is what it says. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What are we to do in the midst of shame? I see this, and you, you read through it, and you're like, Psalm 1 through 3 talks about praising God. Like, how can I really praise God when I'm in the midst of this? And I think that we read this psalm in a way backwards. I think we start with verse 1. We read it the way it's written, but we start in verse 1. It doesn't make any sense. How can we praise God when we're in the midst of feeling this, what we're feeling? I think you really need to start in verse 4, and it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. In the midst of shame, I think the thing that we do is we seek the Lord. We cry out to him is what verse 6 says. I cried out and he heard me. I think that is what we do in the midst of shame is we seek him. The, the Bible teaches in, in Matthew chapter 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. I think in the midst of that shame, in the midst of those feelings, we go to God. And when we go to him, we seek him. That means we listen to him. And when you listen to the enemy and what he says to you in the midst of shame, and then you listen to God and what he says to you in the midst of shame, it is profoundly different. Because shame would say to you, you are flawed, you are defective, you are damaged goods. But God would say to you, you were created in my image. Shame would say to you, you are worthless and you are of no value. And God would say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knitted you together in your mother's womb. You are God's handiwork. 
In the midst of shame, you would hear, God doesn't care about you. But listening to God, you would hear, I know the plans I have for you, says my God. Plans to prosper you and to give you a hope. You would hear shame say to you, no one loves you and God himself could not love you. But if you listen to what God says to you, he says, I so loved you that I sent my son. You can hear shame tell you, you better clean up, you better get better before you even try to come to the Lord. But from God, you would hear, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Shame would tell you, God tolerates you reluctantly. That was one of the things that Josh talked about last week, is that God doesn't really love you. He just reluctantly accepts you. He's like, well, I got to do it. And that's what shame would tell you, but, but God would say to you, the, the height and the depth and the breadth of my love, my love surpasses all knowledge. Shame would say, you are always going to mess up, you are always going to fail, and God says to you, I have canceled the record of sin and I have nailed it to the cross. Shame says you're a prisoner to your shame, but God says, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. He would say to you, in all these things, you are more than conquerors. See, shame will tell you that God is mad at you when you fail. He wants nothing to do with you. But God would say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Shame would say you have failed too many times. It is over for you. And God would say, you may come with confidence to the throne of grace. In the Bible, we are taught to forgive just as God forgave us. We have a parable that tells us that how many times should we forgive? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. But I don't think that God is saying we should only forgive 490 times. He's saying it should be a whole, whole lot. We're to forgive just like that. Shame will tell you that you're on your last chance of God forgiving you. And God would say, my forgiveness can run wild on you. What are we to do in the midst of shame? I think we truly seek him and he will answer. We cry out to him and he will hear. Shame tells us not to do that, though. The next thing I think that we are to do is not just seek him, but we look to him. Before I get there, though, that um, word shame The Hebrew word for shame means to become pale, to blush, to feel humiliation, a public disgrace, a feeling of utter defeat, or a strong guilt. In Hebrew, that word has a direct opposite, like kind of up-down, has a direct opposite. The opposite of shame is trust God. And so when you're in the midst of this, what's really happening is you're, we're not seeking the Lord. We're listening to these shameful thoughts. And what's happening is we're, we're being carried away in those. But the direct opposite of that is to trust God. And so we, we seek him, we listen to him, we look to him. In, the, in our text, it says, those who look to him are radiant. We seek the Lord in the midst of shame. We look to him. We allow him to cover our shame. Remember, we try to cover up our shame, but it doesn't work. But what does work is when God himself comes in and covers our shame. 
Revelation 3, 17 through 18 says this. You say, this is kind of speaking to people. You say, we say, I even at times will say, I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. We can get to a position where we almost feel like we don't need God. And so we try to just cover up these, these thoughts and these feelings. I'm just going to just work real hard and do all these things. I don't need anything, God. But then it says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Some of the things that we hear in the midst of those shameful thoughts are actually true. That's what makes it so hard. You know what? I am flawed as a person. I am. And it's not to drive me to feel bad about myself. It's to drive me to look to him. The text goes on and it says, I counsel you to buy from me, to buy from God, gold refined in the fire, so that you may become rich in white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness. When you try to cover up your shame on your own, it will not work, but God himself can cover the shame. That's exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Remember that? They, they feel naked. They, they're ashamed, and so they sew fig leaves, and they, they kind of make themselves little clothes, but it's still, the feelings are still there. And so what God does is he goes and he takes an animal, and he sacrifices it, and he makes skin clothing to cover them. God wants to cover us in the midst of shame. We seek him, we look to him. Um, I don't know how many people uh, remember watching Saturday Night Live back with Stuart Smalley. Anybody remember Stuart Smalley? Stuart Smalley was this guy, and he said he did words of affirmation. And what you should do if you're feeling bad about who you are, you get a mirror and you sit in front of the mirror and you say to yourself in the mirror, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You can sit in front of that mirror all day and you can say it. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Guess what? It won't, won't work. It won't help. We need someone to cover up the shame. We can try to mask the shame, but we need someone who can mask the shame. We can turn to all these different things to mask the shame, but Psalm 36, 7 through 9 says this, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and give them and you give them drink from the river of delights for with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light when we look to him what happens is he gives us a drink from the river of life we don't need a different kind of drink to mask the pain what we need is the drink from the river of life and what happens is, is he gives us new eyes. It says, in your light do we see light. He gives us new eyes to see the things. And that's what makes the face radiant. We need to allow him to cover the shame, him to mask the shame. We give up to him. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's excellent, whatever's praiseworthy, think on those what we need from the Lord is to have our shame covered, our, our shame masked by him. We need to give up into him. And when that happens, he gives us a drink from the river of life. He gives us new eyes. He makes our face radiant. He gives us a new mind. doesn't mean that you don't still struggle with it. And that's why it talks about us taking refuge in him. 
I want to read four different verses, four different parts of Psalms. Psalm 71.1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me be never put to shame. Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though mountains tremble. Psalm 25, 20, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me be never put to shame, for I take refuge in you. And even in the same uh, psalm, Psalm 34, verse 22 says this, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. In the midst of shame, we seek the Lord. We listen to him. We look to him. We allow him to cover our shame. We allow him to mask our shame. We give up to him. There's a third thing that I think that we do. We seek him. We look to him. And I think it's easy to get to that point. Like, okay, we're okay. But when we're in the moment, it's hard to do. And there are people, I'm sure, in this room that you, there's, there's this struggle of shame that has happened in your life. But really having any type of relationship with God, is, it's, it's not there. There's people who, yeah, we say we, have a, we say we have this relationship with the Lord, but in the midst of this deep, dark stuff, we don't go to Him. And, and I think that what we do in that is, is, is very important. Anybody want to take a guess what this is? Lunch? I wish. I'm starting to get a little hungry. Kind of. Anybody else? A donut. So, I grew up in Centerville. Centerville has Bill's Donuts. Bill's Donuts is open 24 hours a day, which is the best way to have a donut shop. However, there's one donut that trumps all donuts, even at Bill's. Anybody got a guess? But the butter twist at Bill's is the. Well, it's it's still in the donut family, right? Yeah, you get it from a donut shop. This is a Bear Creek apple fritter. An apple fritter. This thing, it has the perfect amount of apple. It's got the perfect amount of icing. It's got a little bit of a crunch, but it's soft on the inside. I mean, I could tell you all about this donut, right? And I could study and I could find out how they make it. And I can tell you that actually the Bear Creek Donuts was started, but it actually was Springboro Donut House. And they've been making these for years. And they would make these at Springboro Donut House and then bring them to Bear Creek. I could tell you all sorts of stuff about this donut. I could tell you that it's like a catcher's mitt. That's how big it is, right? This thing is amazing. But if you've never had it, you don't, you don't know how good it is, right? I guess, I mean, you can taste, I mean, like the, like you can taste like the icing that like breaks in your mouth. Like kind of melt, the inside part really melts in your mouth and you get like a chunk, you get like a chunk of apple and it's just, mm, it is really, really good. But here's the thing, if you've never tasted it, you have no idea. I can tell you all about how good it is. But unless you taste an apple fritter from Bear Creek early in the day, as the day goes on, they get a little bit harder. You don't know how good it is. And so my challenge to you 
I'll save this for later. If anybody steals it, I'm going to be mad. So here's the thing. I can tell you how good it is I can say all those things. And I can say the same thing with God. I can say in the midst of shame, in the midst of these deep, dark feelings that you have about yourself, I can say to you, go to the Lord, seek him, look to him. He will deliver you. He will save you. It says all of these different things that he does, but unless you taste and see that the Lord is good, you don't know. You won't know. And I can tell you, it's as if I personally wrote verse 6. This poor man, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And he saved him out of his troubles. And I can tell you, in the midst of shame, seek him, look to him, call out to him, cry out to him, and you will be able to taste and see that the Lord is good, but I can't, I can't taste him for you. When we read this psalm, I think that we start verse 1. We think, how in the world do you praise God in the midst of shame? You know what happens? He has gone through this cycle in his life of struggle. And he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And then that is why he can write and say what he says here when he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. When we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, it doesn't mean that we're perfectly going to do it. We're going to imperfectly do this. But we've tasted and seen the Lord is good, then we can say, I will bless him at all times. When we've tasted and seen how good he is, his praise can continually be on my mouth. Much like the icing that still is on my lips. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he wants to even use shame. He uses so many different types of tools to come after you, to steal, kill, and destroy, for you to live a life under what God has for you. But God wants to use that stuff that's there and point you to the only one who can do anything about it, which is him. He wants to cover our shame. He wants to mask it. He wants us to give up to him. He wants us to taste and see that he is good. Today is Father's Day. All sorts of different people in this room had all sorts of different experiences with the father, with their father, the earthly father. But my hope and my prayer is today is that we go to the true good father. Scripture says that if if you who are evil can give good gifts, how much more can God give good gifts? Today it is my hope that in the midst of even us preaching about shame, that we can see just how good of a father we have in God. And again, my challenge for all of us is twofold. One, go get a Bear Creek apple fritter and tell me it's not delicious. But way more importantly than that, taste and see that the Lord is good even in the midst of dark, deep shame. Let's pray. God, I truly, truly, truly know how you have rescued me from a pit, how when I cried out, you heard me. 
And God, I, I know that there are people in this room who can, can struggle with all sorts of deep, dark lies that they hear from the enemy. But God, I pray that today would be a day that they would hear the truth that comes from your mouth. They would hear of the love that you have for them. And I pray that today would be a day that all of us would truly be willing to get to a point to where we just taste and see how good you are. God, I pray even knowing how good you are, I pray that I would come to you more and more and more and more and more and see because no matter how much I know how good you are, you are so much better than that. God, I thank you that in the midst of us hearing lies that you speak to us truth. I thank you that you who set free are free indeed. In Jesus' name.